The following podcast contains explicit language. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, our special guest is Michael Adams of Indiana University Bloomington, who will be talking about the amazing collection of dictionaries that belong to the late Madeline Kripke, the so-called Dame of Dictionaries. And later on, we'll be joined by Stefan Fatsis, co-host of the Slate Sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. We'll be challenging Stefan with a wordplay quiz that combines his love of sports and dictionaries. So, Ben, I hear you're a big fan of one Ms. Taylor Swift, (laughs) who's recently been back in the headlines for re-recording all of her albums after her label wouldn't let her have the masters. I I guess you wouldn't call me a Swifty exactly, but I I do have a deep appreciation, I think, of Taylor's oeuvre. So, yeah, you know, I recently stumbled upon a piece by Olivia Craighead over at Gawker, and it had this headline. It said, Taylor Swift is lying about all too well. 10-minute version, Taylor's version. But Taylor wouldn't lie to us like that. I know, it's, it's kind of a bold accusation. But this Gawker piece questions Taylor's claim that the original version of her song, All Too Well, was always 10 minutes long, as opposed to the five-minute version that appeared on her album, Red. So she's just re-recorded this whole album, and this 10-minute version has been released as part of that. So Taylor is saying now that she wrote the whole thing a decade ago, and we're only now getting to hear it in its 10-minute glory. I mean, I like Taylor and everything, and this is cool, but... I thought we were doing a a language podcast, not the Taylor Swift hour. Okay, well, hear me out, because it turns out that the evidence that Gawker uses against Taylor is linguistic. This is a linguistic story, actually. What? Well, here's the deal. So Olivia Craighead argues that it's unlikely that Taylor wrote every bit of the long version in 2011, as she seems to be claiming in interviews that she's done. And it's all because of one particular line in the song. Okay, so at issue here is Taylor's use of the phrase, fuck the patriarchy. So in the Gawker piece, um, it's rightly pointed out that this phrase, fuck the patriarchy, has indeed increased in usage over the last decade or so. In the in the piece, uh, to sort of bolster this claim, they use Google Trends. Also in the piece, it relies on the fact that uh, supposedly Taylor didn't really enter her feminist stage until 2014 or so. Okay, so I get it. Like, we can use tools like Google Trends, which show how searches have changed over time, sort of how much certain words have gone up or down in in interest. But it doesn't mean that Taylor had never heard Fuck the Patriarchy before 2011, just because it wasn't as popular, right? I mean, like Google Trends, uh, what that actually measures is it just spikes in people's searches for words and phrases on Google. 
Um, it's just measuring search interest, basically. It doesn't tell you when people actually started saying those things. So it's not the greatest tool to use for this argument. And so I just wrote a piece for Slate, actually, uh, which you can find linked in the show notes. And I talk about how I found uses of this phrase, fuck the patriarchy, going all the way back to, wait for it, 1989. That's a year that even casual fans know is the year that Taylor Swift herself was born. So this makes fuck the patriarchy at least as old as she is. But, you know, to be fair, you know, a lot of the early examples I was turning up starting in 1989 and going into the 90s, um, they're in, you know, kind of... uh, let's say, LGBTQ publications, for instance, feminist zines, maybe not what young Taylor was reading way back when, when she was a kid. But I still think that, you know, this whole history that you can find for this phrase means we can't rule out the possibility she really did write that lyric back in 2011. Yeah, and Taylor is a cool young woman, and we know from a lot of linguistic studies that young women tend to lead language change. So she was probably ahead of the Google Trends curve. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, this is always an issue, right? We've run into the perennial problem of trying to date when new phrases have entered public use or at least public enough use for Taylor to use them. Um, So while tools like Google Trends can be useful for seeing increases or decreases in interest in a term over time, they can't tell us how words and phrases were moving through the different communities at specific points in time. So in this case, the linguistic evidence against Taylor's claim is circumstantial at best. Okay, well, I'm glad you agree that Taylor's truthfulness remains at least somewhat intact. But, you know, regardless of whether she wrote those exact words a decade ago or not, there is another linguistic angle to all of this. And that's because the line in the song actually has two or at least two possible interpretations. So the song goes, and you were tossing me the car keys, fuck the patriarchy, keychain on the ground. So uh, some people have taken that to mean that the unnamed love interest, which is, of course, widely assumed to be Jake Dylan Hall, was saying, fuck the patriarchy, as he tossed her the car keys. But another reading of the line is that it's literally a fuck the patriarchy keychain. That is a keychain that says fuck the patriarchy on it. And that's what ends up on the ground. I find that second one less plausible, especially given the rise in fuck the patriarchy being interesting sort of in the last decade. Like, to have the production of a fuck the patriarchy keychain <laughs> that she could have owned in 2011 is a stretch. Um, and also, just contextually, it makes more sense that he would have thrown her the keys so she could drive and set it. But anyway, we can't know what was in her mind. And all of this gets into what linguists and philosophers of language call the use mention distinction. So either the guy allegedly Jake, was using the phrase, fuck the patriarchy, and Taylor's reporting that, or the phrase is just mentioned as the thing on the keychain. So all of this leads to another question. Could Jake have even gotten his hands on a keychain like that 10 years ago? (laughs) I don't know about that. It does seem less likely. um, You're right about that. And Taylor is just muddying the waters now, because if you go to her website in the merch section for this reissued, re-recorded album, Red Taylor's version, you can actually buy a Fuck the Patriarchy keychain, although they put a little asterisk uh, in the U for fuck. So, you know. Cleans it up a lot. Yeah, yeah. Much better that way. But I mean, you know, maybe whenever she wrote this line, she just liked the internal rhyme of patriarchy and car keys. You know, that's kind of nice. 
And she had just left the line intentionally ambiguous. And now, of course, she's capitalizing on that ambiguity. I really like this because it could mean that like both meanings are true in the future. So if you were to buy the keychain, you could also have the fuck the patriarchy keychain and toss it to someone while saying fuck the patriarchy. And so then it doesn't really matter. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm glad we were able to address these mysteries using linguistics. After the break, we'll be back with Michael Adams to discuss one of the world's coolest dictionary collections. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. For many years, many connoisseurs of dictionaries, including me, made their way to a pilgrimage site of sorts in Manhattan's West Village. It was the apartment of Madeline Kripke, who earned her nickname the Dame of Dictionaries. That two-bedroom loft was stuffed to the rafters with a jaw-dropping array of English-language dictionaries, many of them incredibly rare and valuable. She also filled a few storage facilities with all of her lexicographical treasures, and all told, she had more than 20,000 items, the largest private collection of dictionaries anywhere in the English-speaking world. On April 25th, 2020, Madeline Kripke passed away at the age of 76 from coronavirus complications. In a long, affectionate obituary, the New York Times noted, one question that none of Ms. Kripke's reference books answers is what will happen to her collection. The obituary quoted her brother, the philosopher Saul Kripke, who said, Unfortunately, it appears that no clear plan existed for her collection. We are now in touch with some of her expert friends for advice. So serious dictionary lovers awaited news of what might happen to Madeline Kripke's collection. And we finally found out last month on October 16th, And that's recognized as Dictionary Day because it's Noah Webster's birthday. The announcement came from Indiana University Bloomington. And it makes sense that Indiana would be the institution to acquire the Kripke collection since the school's Lilly Library was already renowned for its dictionary holdings. The acquisition was arranged by Michael Adams, provost professor and chair of the English department at Indiana University Bloomington, and we're very happy to have him as our guest for this episode to tell us all about the wonders of the Kripke collection. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you for having me. It's very I, I'm always excited to talk about the Kripke collection. So you and Ben were both lucky enough to visit Madeline Kripke at her Greenwich Village apartment when she was still alive. Could you describe what it was like to step into that apartment? Okay, now this is very interesting, Nicole, because in fact, I never visited the apartment. Oh, I just assumed that you had. I know, everybody assumes I did. And I I did not visit the apartment because I am not an urban person like Ben and many of Madeline's other friends and make it to New York City about once every 20 years. So uh, chances of a visit were pretty slim. What we did instead was correspond a lot. And once pictures were available from phones and things like that, she would send me pictures of things. And then we'd talk about the stuff via email. So my my knowledge of the visits comes from the accounts of all the other people who made visits. And so I have a sense of what they were like. People would go in and they had a curated experience. It was as curated as the collection itself because she had to go through all of those items and pull the things she thought were most interesting to the folks who were visiting. Or if they had a particular purpose and had contacted her about that, she would pull the things that were relevant to the visit, right? So she would do that. And people have said, and I mean, no disrespect to Madeline uh, for this because it was a lot to, to manage on her end. Everybody felt that there was a little bit of a dance going on, you know, that these things had been pulled out and they were shown these things and there were all kinds of other things they wanted to see, but they couldn't see those things. 
And I don't know about them, but my understanding is that there was no grazing in that apartment where you walked around and you looked at things. But for me, it was maybe in some ways luckier because what I got to see was not what Madeline pulled because I asked about it, but because she suddenly had something that she wanted to share. uh, And she thought that I was the person to share it with. So I feel fortunate in that. Well, when I got to visit, I don't know if she was really pulling things out for me so much, because it turned out we had a shared interest in the history of American slang. And so that was all over the place. She didn't have to pull things out. In fact, she had an entire wall of slang um, that was just, you know, covering everything from, you know, the jargon of pickpockets to, you know, Hepcat slang of the 30s to Valley Girl talk, and just like this amazing array just covering an entire wall. So, you know, I would just sort of like feast my eyes on all of these amazing treasures that she had picked up over the years. And I remember seeing one particularly rare and valuable item. It's a book by Alan Walker Reed, and it was published in a very limited run in 1935 with an innocuous sounding title. The title was Lexical Evidence from Folk Epigraphy in Western North America, a Glossarial Study of the Low Element in the English Vocabulary. But what it really was, was a collection of vulgar slang, vulgar language that Alan Walker Reed had collected from bathroom graffiti. Uh, Michael, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that particular title. Yeah, well, it's an amazing project. Alan went on vacation with his family on a few occasions to national parks uh, in the west of the United States. About the time he was doing it, people still thought that Iowa and, and Minnesota and places like that were sort of in the west. And that's the area he was from, but he went out further west, even into British Columbia to some parks. And uh, what Ben described is really true. He was a natural lexicographer. He had pen and pencil always at hand. He went into one of the outhouses. He saw the graffiti there. He copied it down. And suddenly, and this is in the late 1920s, he had, you know, not quite what we would call a corpus today, but something to work from. And he was able to pull the evidence together into this little book of which 75 copies were made. In that time, the 1920s, you couldn't publish that book in the United States. So it was published by a French publishing house. And Alan brought several copies of the book back with him by steamship. But he left some behind to be sent to him just in case the censors at the harbor found all of the books and threw them all away, right? It is the smallest printing with the biggest impact uh, of any book I, I know, because it's a very celebrated book. And anybody working on slang or profanity has to have access to it. The good news was, that in the 1970s, Reinhold Amann, who was the editor of Maledicta, which was a journal of bad language, decided to republish it in his book series. And so it's been available as paperback since then. And lots of people have had access to it in a way that they wouldn't. Uh, We haven't found it yet. Uh, We haven't unpacked any of the boxes yet. But I assume that her copy of Lexical Evidence was Alan Walker Reed's copy. Madeline Kripke died before she could make plans for where the collection would go. And how did you make sure her collection would remain intact and that the Lilly Library at IU would be its home? Well, the first question, how it remained intact, is down to a group of people Saul Kripke, Madeline's brother, consulted with. I mean, I give Saul a great deal of credit. I mean, here he is, you know, suddenly stuck with over 20,000 books that he never wanted to have any responsibility for. But he wanted to preserve Madeline's legacy as she would want it preserved. And so he asked of a group of her dictionary friends, right, what to do with it. And the one thing everybody agreed on was 
keep it intact because it's a curated collection. It's not just a bunch of books that she picked up at stores, uh, you know, and, and then put into a room. It was something she really groomed. So he was very willing to keep it together in the end, but that did mean that it couldn't go out to sale. And I think that that's what Madeline's friends were most concerned would not happen. You know, could, one might ask, one get a better return on all of these books if one sold them at auction through an accredited auction house? Well, the answer to that probably is yes. And so foregoing that and agreeing to give it as an intact collection was a bit of a sacrifice on the part of that estate, but I think really showed Saul's goodwill. Um, the second question is also fun to answer, and I have fun answering this because I've had the advantage here of, of helping, serving a, a friend of mine at the same time that I'm serving you know, the language professions, at the same time that I'm serving Indiana University. I was in these conversations with Saul. And I suddenly just realized one day what the estate was up against in terms of, you know, IRS deadlines and uh, probate deadlines and things like that. And how do you appraise or have appraised over $20,000 books and a manuscript collection and other things in time to meet those deadlines? The answer is you can't really. And so I teach at a public university even though it's a pretty well-heeled one and the Lilly Library has its own resources. But the question was, could something this priceless actually end up in a public university library? Would we have the means to do it? In the end, putting the director of the Lilly Library and the dean of the libraries together then with Saul affected that agreement, you know, that this was the place for it to be. The critical issue besides keeping it intact was making it broadly available. The Lilly Library is a public a university library. And it's really true that if you're just walking down the street uh, and you want to look at an old book, for some reason, you can go in and register as a citizen uh, and have access to all but the rarest items in the collection. And that meant that Madeline's collection would be available to the person on the street as well as to scholars. That's what she would have wanted. And that's one of the things we helped to preserve. So in addition to all of the books and pamphlets and ephemera that Madeline collected, she also got her hands on a lot of historically significant correspondence and business records relating to Merriam-Webster, America's most famous dictionary company. Could you tell us a bit about what is now known as the Merriam-Webster archive that forms an important part of the cryptic collection? I can't tell you a whole lot because, in fact, I've not seen it. And I don't think many people have seen it in its entirety. When I say many people, I should say I think no one's seen it in its entirety, probably besides Madeline. Um, but it is what you describe. It's early 19th century correspondence and business records, according to the brief description uh, we have of it on file now. I guess the signal piece in the whole collection is the letter between the Miriam brothers about the advisability of uh, uh, buying Noah Webster's dictionary and trying to make it into a commercial success. They had the insight that a dictionary could be like the Bible or a textbook, some other things that they published that were high volume sales. And that's what they did. They didn't want to pick up some niche product and try to peddle that in the, in the dusty road book market of the time, right? But uh, they thought, well, a dictionary, maybe every home ought to have a dictionary in the same way that every home ought to have a Bible. And that insight then led to their killing, really, with the dictionary over the 19th and into the 20th century. And that piece of correspondence is preserved in that archive, along with a whole bunch of other stuff. Michael Adams, thanks so much for being with us. And after the break, it's time for some wordplay. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. And as we've done for the past few episodes, we're going to be challenging one of our fellow Slate podcasters to a wordplay quiz. 
This time around, we have Stefan Fatsis, one of the hosts of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. Stefan is the author of two sports-related books, Wild and Outside, about a renegade minor league in baseball, and A Few Seconds of Panic, about his time training as a place kicker with the Denver Broncos. But perhaps most important for our purposes, he's also the author of Word Freak, Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive Scrabble Players. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Good to be here, Nicole. Thanks for having me. So, Stefan, along with your passion for Scrabble and other word games and word puzzles, um, I happen to know you are also a dictionary buff. And earlier in the show, we were talking to Michael Adams about Indiana University acquiring the unparalleled collection of Madeline Kripke, the dame of dictionaries. Do you happen to have any memories of Madeline Kripke that you would like to share with us? Oh, I do. I visited Madeline three times in her apartment in Greenwich Village when I was working on uh, researching a book about Merriam-Webster, which I'm still working on. And it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my reporting life, uh, walking into her apartment. You were just awestruck, I mean, both by the mess and by the absolute encyclopedic collection and knowledge that Madeline displayed and the passion she had for language. She sat me down at this tiny little desk in the middle of the chaos and had prepared all of these documents about Merriam-Webster, which she then took me through page by page with this exacting knowledge of everything because she had transcribed these letters from the 19th century by herself and then figured out what it all meant. She was a remarkable woman. Speaking of your work on this Merriam-Webster kind of project that you're working on, are there any words in particular that you're proud of defining, either ones that have been added to the dictionary already or ones that haven't been added yet? I am proud to say that I got into the dictionary. I defined uh, microaggression and safe space and alt-right among a handful of others. I got about a dozen into the dictionary during my couple of years as a faux lexicographer working for Merriam-Webster or embedding at Merriam-Webster. And then I defined about, like, you know, 80 more that didn't get into the dictionary. And among those, my two favorites that I hope someday will make it are the uh, gender-neutral pronouns Z-E and X-E, which I totally think should be in the lexicon and also would be real great additions for Scrabble. The official Scrabble dictionary relies on Merriam-Webster as one of the sources for what officially counts as a word in Scrabble. And I remember back in 2014, you wrote a piece for Slate called These Sports Terms Should Be Playable in Scrabble. And I remember you asked me for some sports terms that hadn't yet entered Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. And you made a strong case for one word, posterize, uh, which you also noted has a Scrabble playable anagram, poetizers. And that actually ended up being one of the words that you got to define and is now in the dictionary, if I'm not mistaken, right? It is in the dictionary, yeah. Um, that was very exciting. Posterize had been in the dictionary, but it meant to like make a poster, like to turn something into a poster, but the sports sense was added not too long ago. Well, we have a wordplay quiz for you that combines your love of sports and dictionaries. Like Posterize, the answers to all of the questions will be sports-related terms that have been added to Merriam-Webster's dictionary in recent years. We'll give you some hints from the definitions of the words, and since you're a scrabbler and you like anagramming, we'll also give you clues for anagrams or near anagrams of the words. How does that sound? Sounds challenging. Always got to lower the bar. This is right up your alley, Stefan. You got this. Okay, here is one to start. 
This first one is a word that, much like posterize or posterization, refers to an embarrassing situation on the basketball court. It's seven letters long, so good for Scrabble, and it can be used as a noun or a verb. And it has an anagram that is a famous brand of pasta. Yeah, I think I know this one. I didn't define it myself, but the answer is airball. And what would that anagram be? Barilla. Which I guess is not playable in Scrabble because, you know, brand names are not not allowable, right? No. But there you go. And so airball is in Merriam-Webster as a noun and a verb, but I guess it's only the verb which really would work for Scrabble because it's that closed compound, right, without a space? Takes a front hook of an H, though. I think hairball is good. And it's not surprising you got that one so quickly since your Hang Up and Listen co-host, Josh Levine, did a deep dive into the history of the airball chant in basketball back in 2016. Next up is another Scrabble-friendly seven-letter word. It's a word for something in sports that's bad for a player to be on and good for a player to be off. And here's your wordplay clue. If you had a T on the Scrabble board, you could combine it with the letters of this word to form an eight-letter word, meaning revealed secrets about someone. This is a tough one. Good to be on, bad to be off. How many letters again? So it's seven. If you added a T to it, then it would be another word meaning revealed secrets about someone. You're on the, it's one word, huh? So if we gave you the anagram and told you the anagram is snitched. Not schneid. Yes, that's it. Oh, okay. What was the eight, the definition of the eight? Snitched. So we said if it was seven and then you added a T, which would make it eight. Here's your next one. There's a four-letter word that was added to Merriam-Webster's dictionary a few years back, and it commonly gets used with another four-letter word to form an angry athletic phrase. That first four-letter word is a short form of a seven-letter word that has a bunch of anagrams in Scrabble, including a word for people who might work on dictionaries. People who might work on dictionaries. Who are those people called that? Ah, editors. Editors, indeed. And then give me the sports clue again. The seven-letter word that you can be shortened to a four-letter word, which was recently added to the dictionary. Roid was recently added, and the seven is steroid. And then combining it with another four-letter word gets you that angry athletic phrase, which would be? Roid rage. Roid rage. These are all recent additions to the dictionary. Of course, steroid was there for a long time. And since you're a Scrabble player, why don't you give us all of the possible anagrams for those letters? Triodes, editors, sorted, and storied. Okay, we have one more for you, and it's a tough one. This time we're looking for a six-letter word recently added by Merriam-Webster. It's the name of a modified form of soccer that you might find in Latin America. And it has two anagrams, one that could refer to imperfections, or one that could refer to a bodily eruption. I think I know the Spanish word. Oh, good. The Latin American. I think it'd be Spanish or Portuguese, I think. Or Portuguese. Football is the answer, F-U-T-B-O-L. Well, actually, that's not quite it. You have the first three letters right, but in this variant of uh, soccer, it's a different kind of game 
that's like soccer, but not oh, quite. Oh, I thought you said football. Oh, it's futsal. There you course. go. There you and go. I knew that that was added recently. Yeah. So spell that out for us and also tell us the anagrams if you got those. It's F-U-T-S-A-L. There you go. Yes. False is the imperfection and the bodily eruption would be... Also starting with F. Also starting with F would be... Something that's expelled uh, from the bowels, let's say. Flatus. Flatus, there you go. So the way that Merriam-Webster has defined futsal is a game developed from soccer that is typically played indoors between two teams of five players each and whose object is to propel a round ball into the opponent's goal by kicking or by hitting it with any part of the body except the hands and arms. So I learned this today from the Spanish futbal sala, or um, futbol de, de salón, or Portuguese futebol de salão, hall football. Futsal is interesting because it's basically played with a ball that's a little bit heavier, so it doesn't bounce as much. So indoor soccer can be played with a regular soccer ball, but that bounces crazily like a regular soccer ball. The futsal ball is a little smaller and a little heavier. Well, well done on this quiz, Stefan, and thanks so much for coming on and playing. I feel like I should have done much better, like the pressure. You did great. Now we have a challenge for all of our listeners. Merriam-Webster recently added an entry for a two-word phrase used for a precarious kind of rock climbing. It can be used as a noun or a verb, and it has also been used as a movie title. Add the letter C to this phrase, and you can anagram it to make a word that might be used for repossessing a house. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacularatslate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include both the two-word phrase and the word that it can anagram to if you add the letter C. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. Once again, that's spectacularatslate.com with quiz in the subject line. And please respond by midnight Eastern time on December 1st. And in the email, tell us where you're from, too. We're very pleased to announce the winner of the contest from our November 9th episode. Dan Marks of Denver, Colorado, figured out that the 1956 doo-wop song title, Hiding the Names of Two Philosophers, is Stranded in the Jungle, a song made famous by the cadets. The two philosophers' names hiding in the title are Rand, as in Ayn Rand, and Jung, as in Carl Jung. Congratulations, Dan. Thanks to Stefan Fatsis for joining us. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, Decoder Ring, and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. Thanks again to Michael Adams for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is managing producer and Gabriel Roth is editorial director for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.